and the person's lo really losing track of himself as a Christian, who he is, that apart from the grace of God, there's no way he's going to get into heaven. A person's mind, now I'm not talking about his mouth and what he says and what he says he believes. We're talking about self-deception. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would hide your servant behind the cross of Christ. I ask that Jesus would get all the praise and all the glory. I pray that he would so illuminate you know, this teaching that he would be exalted, he would get the glory, uh, the light would shine through of his message, of his life, of the Gospels that project the person of Jesus Christ, Almighty God in the flesh, who he was, what he did, his relationship with the Father, and how the Trinity is a God of love and justice. I pray, Lord, that you would just magnify your name in, in this message. I ask it in your holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. This is episode 52 in the Cultural Christianity series. The name of it, I've named it, entitled it, When Light is Darkness. And we're talking about transformation and assurance. We're in First uh, John today, but uh, I'm going to open with a statement by Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, and verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. What is it that really indicates, that indicates that a person is an what they say they are? They profess Christianity. And what, so the question is, what is it that indicates what a what, that a person is an authentic Christian? That they're not a Christian in word only. Jesus said here that it's not the professors, but the practicers. Those who practice what they say is the authentic Christian. He said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, before he says what they say, he talks about what they do. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, calling him Jesus Lord. As many as received Jesus as Lord, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. The Lord is all through the New Testament. 
but not those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not about those who call me Lord, but those who do what the Father says. And then he goes in and he, he brings up religion. He says, you know, many will say to me in that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Okay, they're speaking it. Uh, did we not cast out demons in your name? So they say. And perform many miracles, or so they say. But even if they did those things, even if they were apostles, which he's not talking about the apostles here, um, but even if they had the, the, the signs of an apostle that you can read about in Corinthians, Second Corinthians, um, I, that he will declare to those people in that day, I never knew you. You know, the issue is the intimacy with God that produces, that produces the character of God in the individual, which means it, it produces practice. It produces a righteous life. It produces the character that Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31, and uh, the writer to the Hebrews talks about in chapters 8 and 10, where a new, this is the new covenant, I will create in a person a new heart. I will place within their heart a, uh, my law. I will write them on, on his mind. The law becomes supreme. What God says from Genesis to Revelation becomes the supreme goal, the purpose, the direction, the commands that govern a person who belongs to Jesus Christ. To perfection, no. But the direction is there. It's a new direction. And so having said that and understanding that there are people who just say and they don't do, and there are people who do, not to perfection, but they do it to a whole new level than the rest of the world that's lying unconverted, unrepentant, who have not recognized the element of sin that governs each one of us as we're born into this, into this state, into this race of Adam, and as we mature as adults and we make our choices that our, our love is not for God, but our love is for the world. It's not for the eternal, it's for the, that which is present, the here and the now. And those are two completely different governing uh, elements that make up every person. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 32, you get a great line, something that's really phenomenal, that from the sons of Issachar, and then in this chapter he's talking about men of war, and he's talking about, in the, in the context, David's mighty men, and he's talking about men who are mighty for God, who are actually taking hold of the land that God is giving them, that parcel, that place that God wants, to, wants for his people. And so from the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. So while he's talking about all these great attributes that the men of war had, whether it was shooting a bow, an arrow, or it was using a sword, whatever it might be, this whole context... This, this people in Issachar makes kind of a, 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 a whole different way of looking at war and life. And that is there were men who understood the times. I wonder how many men really understand, understand the times in which we're living right now. 
I mean, they are really crazy times in, in America and around the world. Crazy in the sense that, you know, is this thing really they're talking about? Is it, is it the Black Plague that they're talking about? Is it wiping out, you know, a third of the population of the world, you know, or, you know, is it something else? There's questions. What, what, what's going on in the world? Uh, Some things that are going on have gone on forever, you know, but, you know, do we understand the times with knowledge of what Israel should do? What what, what Christians should do? Who are Christians? You know, is it the 11 or is it Judas? Is it Judas who is accepted by the 11, a close friend, a brother, someone who was part of the, the inner circle and then he goes out and hangs himself, commits suicide, because he wasn't real. That's part of what, what is Christianity? Who, who are we? In Acts chapter 6 and verses 3 through 5, it says, Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The announcement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen. So Stephen is chosen as a deacon or a servant, and he's going to wait on tables. Stephen becomes the first martyr. Stephen goes through the scriptures that no one could refute his words. I mean, you're talking about educated man, uh, Pharisees, religious men of the time, knew the holy scriptures, depending on what sect they were in. Some were political, some of them were religious. And the religious ones, they couldn't refute this, uh, this Stephen. We don't really know much about him except he had a servant heart and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what mattered. didn't matter that he didn't have seminary, that he didn't have... Uh, uh, he was obviously not a religious leader. And so he didn't have the training, that scholarly trainer that it took to become a religious leader. He's nobody. As far as that goes, he's nobody. But the wisdom that he had and the, the, the understanding of Scripture was incredible. And he shows Jesus Christ as the Messiah through you know, paragraph after paragraph of, of ex- disclosing what the Old Testament Scripture pronounced the Messiah would be. Jesus, 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 Jesus. He fulfilled everything coming from the mouth of this person who was not a scholar, wasn't even a seminary graduate. He didn't have an MDiv. But as the scripture declares, that's not the all-important issue. The all-important issue is the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. The man obviously had a high priority for what the scripture said and what the scriptures meant. He got the meaning. People look and they try to see Jesus in the Old Testament and People are dissing the Old Testament today. I'm not, I don't need to mention names. You know, they just want to separate themselves because they have very low regard for the Bible. Anyone who takes the Old Testament, puts it in different categories, the new, right from square one, there's, there's a problem. There's a problem in understanding what's being said. Now, I'm going to give you a man who studied the scriptures every single day. And this is what a uh, quote that I, I have from him. I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God written by those who were inspired. I studied the Bible daily. I studied the Bible daily. Who might that be? Well, this man was a scientist. I mean, world-renowned scientist. 
in our day, we revere the, the mind of this man, who he was. Yep, he's in past hidden history, and his name was Sir Isaac Newton. He had a very high regard, and this high regard, I believe, as I, I believe, I don't never met him, and so this take this with a grain of salt, but I believe him to be have been a, a Christian man. And as a Christian man, he makes a startling, uh, really, really profound statement. And his statement is, a man may imagine things that are false. He, imagination, this is imagination. And, and with his imagination, he can say things that are false or imagine them that are false. But he can only understand things that are true. For if the things are false, the comprehension of them is not understanding. Let me say that again. But he can only understand things that are true. For if the things are false, the comprehension of them is not understanding. It's kind of deep. What is understanding? So a man comes along and he says, there's gravity. You know, he, he understands the principles of gravity. Well, can you prove it? Sure. Anywhere you go in the world, if you let something go, it's going down. Okay, that's a principle. Principle as a law. Principle as something that is scientifically proven because of the results that happen. We say gravity is, we're being holed down. We're not floating off into space. And it's proved all the time, consistently. A man comes along and says, gravity is a figment of your imagination. It's not real. It's not true. Okay, so prove it. Give me understanding on how that works. No one is going to be able to understand that gravity is not real. <laughs> okay. It's without reason. So we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to term understanding as something that's reasonable. It, uh, it makes sense. It, f- it fits together and it's provable. You can prove gravity. You can't prove that gravity is not real or just a figment of someone's imagination. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because as we go into 1 John, we're going to look at the fact that the Apostle John is, he has a couple of reasons for writing the book, and I'm going to cite those, and then he's going to talk about light. He's going to talk about understanding. He's going to talk about truth and how these elements are really important in fulfilling or, or, or understanding the purpose that he's writing. Here's the purpose in chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that. Okay, got, the, got it right there. We don't have to go any further than this. My little children, there's a nice relationship. He's looking at us as children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's the purpose, so that you may not... This is a way of fulfilling for the Christian, the person who has received Jesus Christ by faith, has repented of sin, has turned to God, has been given a new heart. This person can fulfill what Jesus says. You know, I don't care about lawless people. Uh, I don't care what you say if you're lawless. I know those who practice the truth. And then the last 
uh, thing. He says there's other reasons in the book as to why he wrote it, but in 5.13 he says these things, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So number one, you may not sin. Number two, you may know you have eternal life. These are two and they're tied very tightly together. Not sinning and knowing you have eternal life. We're not talking about false assurance predicated upon denominationalism, walking down an aisle, praying a prayer, uh, any so many number of things that can be done that can give a person a false sense of assurance. Yeah, I did it back then. We're talking about the Apostle John and what he says. I've written these things so you won't sin. I've written these things so that you may know you have eternal life. And what are the things that he wrote? Okay, so the message is this. Here's the message. Why these things are written? Okay, here's the message of what's written. He says it in chapter 1 and verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Darkness, we're going to understand as uh, not understanding. Okay, it's not reasonable. It's not true, built on something that is true and real, understandable and reasonable. And for this, I want to turn for a moment from that message that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all to a passage from Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Come say, look, this is the message that we heard from him. Okay, where is this coming from? Many places through the Gospels you can see this, and of course in the New Testament, but in the Gospels, John is looking back at the time that he spent with Jesus. So in one portion, Jesus says, this is Jesus speaking, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, in the, in the Greek, single focused, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, and that's the misery of evil, your body also is full of darkness. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Now here comes the warning from Jesus. If I warn you, eh, you can take that for what it's worth, not much. But when Jesus warns, this is the eternal God. This is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the one sitting on the seat of judgment on the last day. It's important to take his warnings seriously. He doesn't just lay warnings out there, you know, to protect the innocent. He's laying warnings out there because every one of us can fall into this. And so we need to take it to heart. We need to listen carefully. And so he says, so watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light without any dark part, it will be wholly illuminated. But when the lamp illuminates you with its, as when the lamp illuminates you with its life, light. The, wa- the, the so watch out, the warning is that the light be not darkness. That the light is not darkness. What does he mean by that? Think about it this way. <clears throat> you know, you look out there into the, into the world and because of light, you're able to see everything. When it goes dark, you can't see anything. I mean, have you been in pitch black where you put your, fa- your hand up to your nose and you can't see it? Pitch black. 
Light allows you to see everything. And you look out, you see the trees and the grass and the road. And if you're on a team, you look out there and you see the base, the bases and you see the outfield and the infield and you see all the players and you see the ball. And the ball comes at you and you can actually hit the ball. Why? Because your whole body is illuminated. The mind takes in what's being seen. It translates it to your muscles and your nerves and everything in your body. And everything is working together. And you can swing the bat and hit the ball if you're good enough. But you see what's going on. And you're illuminated. Now, Jesus isn't talking about baseball. He's talking about life. He's talking about the principles that we live by. He's talking about truth. If you look out into the world and what you see is true, there is gravity. If what you see in theology, in doctrine, in teachings, in philosophy, in what people may, may prescribe is the truth, when you see and you receive, is it light, is it truth, or is it darkness and a lie? You get the picture? It's either illuminating or you think it's illuminating. If you think it's illuminating, then you perceive it to be light, but it's really dark. And what you perceive to be understanding is really not understanding at all. Scary, isn't it? It should be scary. It is scary. So going on to 1 John chapter 1, he goes to, to verse uh, 6. We're going to look at 6, 8, and 10. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. It makes sense from Luke chapter 11 as we pull the scriptures together because he's saying if, if, we, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian, uh, I know him, and then what we, yet what we do is we walk in the dark because what we're believing to be true is really dark. Not just the fact that I, I know Jesus, but the fact of what Jesus taught, I'm misunderstanding those things. Like I could be misunderstanding what he meant by when he said, you know, if, we, if the light is, that's in you is darkness, we'll watch out for that. Be warned about that. So with all the theology that's out there and all the different interpretations, is a man holding high the word of God so that he knows the meaning of what the word is saying or is he taking a human interpretation which is false and really a deception which maybe is being handed down by seducing spirits and doctrines of demons as Paul wrote in Timothy? Is it a doctrine of a demon? Is it a lie? Is it a deception like Adam and Eve in the garden? Are they believing that God is actually lying? Or do they see the truth and really understand? You got five people and they all come together and they got all a di different interpretation. And I'm not talking application. I'm talking interpretation. What is the meaning of what the scripture says? What is Jesus talking about when he talks about light and darkness? What is John talking about here in this verse when he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we're walking in a lie, walking in the deception that the theology that we are espousing is actually true when it's actually false. You know, our, our, is our tongues for today. Uh, are, are women allowed to teach in the church uh, other than women? You know, uh, are, are pastors to live a godly life and have their, their family in total subjection 
You know, are they a bit, are they above reproach? You know, are they, how are you interpreting so much all of the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? Well, if we interpret it wrongly and we don't get the right meaning, John John is saying here, if we're actually walking in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. Jesus said, "Who are those who belong to Him? Those who practice, not the lawless." but those who practice his commands. How can you practice his commands when you're walking in the dark? So we go from this first condition that we say we have fellowship, but yet the Bible is a deception to us. Some of the theologies are all the theology and and the teachings and the doctrines. They're just, they're, they're wrong. We're being deceived. And as a result, we can't practice the truth. We then, uh, in John 14, 21, Jesus said, the one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Will uh, reveal myself to him. See, the revelation of God comes through the one who keeps his commandments. A changed heart, a transformed life adds up to a person with a high view of Scripture uh, getting it right Therefore, he studies to show himself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He gets it right. Jesus comes to that person and reveals. He gives the understanding that he's meant to have, and he's not living in the dark. So then in verse chapter, in verse 8, he goes on and he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not. So now he goes from saying that he has fellowship and walking in the dark to saying that he has no sin, and self-deception comes in, and the truth is not in us. So we go from not practicing the truth The truth is not there at all, which really was the state of the very first verse. It's just, it's it's a deepening of this condition. So a person can start off by believing deceptions, by believing that he's having fellowship with Jesus, but sin in his life is pushing Jesus out of his life, and by pushing Jesus out of his life, he's not actually practicing the truth. He's living a lie. He goes from that state to, the, to deceiving himself to even a greater degree, and the truth is not in him at all. I mean, it's not just about practice. He's, just, he's in the dark. It can be the same way of, different ways of saying the same thing, or it can be a deepening and a hardening of the heart. If you hear his voice do, today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's a very ominous statement. Chapter, in, in verse 10, he goes on to yet another level. I believe in deception. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He goes from saying that he, he, uh, that we have no sin to saying we have not sinned. Now that's a time element. I'm not sinning right now or I've never sinned. Those are two completely different things. Now, you're going to say a Christian wouldn't do that. But wait, we're not finished. There's more. 
I'm going to show you that from Second Peter. But before we get there, he goes from deceiving himself, actually originally, he, he goes from lying to deceiving himself to making God a liar. I, I think this is a deepening problem. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, God, and his word is not in us. It's really important. It's the one who abides in Christ, where the word remains, that perseveres to the end, who's attached to the vine. You're the, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Continue in me. And then you bring forth what? The, the, the practice. Otherwise, you're just deepening the darkness by going from I'm not sinning to I've never sinned. Now, in, in chapter 1 of Second Peter and verse 1, it says this, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So th- he's talking to people who are, he believes could be and are Christians, or at least ways he's throwing this out there. And he's saying to those who have received the faith the same as ours, real, real believing Christians. And this is what he's writing from verses 5 to 11. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, he says supply moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Supply these. These are the things, the practicing of the things that makes the law real, that makes the commandments, that fulfills the commandments. But then he gives a warning. He gives a possibility here. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do not make you useless nor unproductive in the epinosis, the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a deep knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have these things, you will be unproductive in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities, he goes on to say, is blind. Oh, in the dark again. Or short-sighted, can't really see very far, past that is all blurry. Have forgotten, he's short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Oh, ooh, what? His purification from his former sins. Past tense. Uh, not, I'm not sinning, I've not sinned. It's not part of who we are. I mean, pride just, just runs rampant at this point, and the person's lo- really losing track of himself as a Christian, who he is, that apart from the grace of God, there's no way he's going to get into heaven. A person's mind, now I'm not talking about his mouth and what he says and what he says he believes. We're talking about self-deception here. We're talking about saying one thing and doing another. This is entering into the realm of real hypocrisy, as we see in the lives of the Pharisees, that they see Jesus raise a man from the dead and they want to kill him. This is how far they went to protect themselves in this life with no perspective for eternity. This warning is coming down to people of the same kind of faith as ours. And I'll show that that he's really not talking about the lost here. He's talking about something other than that. Therefore, brothers, he goes on to say, and sisters, be, actually, 
Therefore, brothers, in the original, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, there are those who are lost who stand before God, and what do they hear? They hear those horrible words, I never knew you, depart from me. You know, go to that place prepared for the devil and his demons. This is not talking to those people. This is talking to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where there's the bema seat of Christ, the handing out of rewards, and instead of receiving rewards, they go up in smoke because they're just being burned through the fire. Every man will be passed through the fire. Now, he himself will be saved, but he will suffer loss. And that loss is the ability to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because Jesus died and he suffered an impossible to imagine eternal suffering in our place that we would have suffered. And he took our place, he took it upon him, he endured the cross. And in light of that, here we come with things that are just empty and going up in smoke. What sane person would want to stand before Jesus Christ and go through that? I mean, I'm not looking forward to that day because I know there's going to be works burned up and I know there's going to be tears. I just, I, I know it. I confess them all I want and there is that element in 1 Corinthians 3 that confessing, it does something. I'm not God. I can't see the judgment. I'm just concerned about myself in this position, in this, when we think about this whole, the arena of standing before him at the, at the handing out of rewards. So if we, if we say we have not sinned and we make him a liar, we put ourselves in an awful position, an, an awful position. We're in the dark. And this is, comes from not discerning, not being careful to understand doctrine. Don't just go run off because of the church. You know, my pastor always preaches from the Bible. You know, it just seems to make sense. That doesn't get the job done. You know, just because you're not a person who likes to read or you're not a person who likes to study and you're just not intellectually that way, that doesn't give you permission to just follow along. You know, I know, you know, sheep, I don't remember, I think it was like 2,000 sheep just followed the leader sheep right off the cliff because that's what they do. They just follow one another to the death. That's what sheep do. Jesus referred to as his flock. We are sheep. We are not meant to be stupid, unstudied sheep. We are meant to be read in the scriptures. You don't have to be an intellectual. The scripture doesn't even work that way. The scripture is not about, you know, I've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and I've revealed them to babes, Jesus said. It's not about being intellectual. It's not about being a scholar. I mean, I would not be talking here at all if I needed to be a scholar, because I'm not a scholar. I'm not highly intelligent. I just happen to read the scriptures and been relentless in reading and studying the scriptures. And when you do that, God gives wisdom 
if you elevate it to more important than yourself. And that's only a grace of God in my life. And it can only be a grace of God in everyone's life. No one merits God's grace. That's the, that changes the definition of it. It's something we don't deserve. So where does that leave the average Christian? Okay, you're not a Charles Spurgeon. You're not a, a George Whitfield. You're not a, any one of numerous men who are scholars. Okay, that's fine. Well, you have less access to the throne of God. You have less access to the throne of grace. You have ac- less access to the wisdom that God provides that when Solomon says, listen to this, my son, in Proverbs chapter 3. Listen to this, my son. John is saying, listen to this, my son. If you have the Holy Spirit, you may not have the faith to believe this, but you have the capability of everything that you need built that's in God to be built into you as God makes it happen. Apply your faith to that. That God says, study to self yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. I'm not a workman. No, but you are, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're repenting from sin to the point you're really pleading with God, get rid of this sin so that I can know you. If you're doing that, don't tell me that God won't answer that prayer of faith. <laughs> because that goes against God's will, because God's will is that you would not sin. Now that's where you apply faith. That's where you believe that God is real and that he's the keeper of the promises he makes. And believe me, he is the God who keeps the promises that he makes. I'm going to give you further understanding in this. Moses had a new heart for God. Numbers 33, 13 says, Now then, if I have... This is Moses talking to God. If I have found favor in your sight in any way, Please let me know your ways so that I may know you in order that I may find favor in your sight. First, he's questioning God. I believe in a highly respected manner. God did give him what he asked for. Now then, I, if I have found favor in your sight, he's doubting you know, the favor. Like He's doubting because he knows who he is and he doesn't deserve favor. He may not be understanding grace. He may probably be understanding grace. I don't want to to retract that. But in this moment of time, he wants something from God. And and, and it's it's feasible that he's he's saying, you know, is this real? Maybe his faith is is wavering something. I mean, if I've really found favor in your sight in, in, in any way, in any way, you know, like not in every way, in any way, Please let me know, and this is what he wants. Please let me know your ways. You know, if we know a person's ways, we know the person. We know how they think. We know where they're going. We know the path to take. Look, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know how to get there? You know the way. I'm the way. It comes back to the same thing. Knowing the way is knowing the person. And Moses desperately wanted to know God. And he figured he could know God if he would know the ways. And so he's telling God, show me your ways. Now God's been showing him his ways. And God continued to show him his ways. And he was on a a person-to-person, friend-to-friend relationship with God. And God was doing just that. And that was what he was placing in Moses' heart. I'm putting it there. I'm creating it there. 
You know, you love the children of Israel. I love the children of Israel. I want the children of Israel to succeed. But I need you to understand who is a child of God and who isn't. That's part of the ways. That's what we're, sh- we're shuffling through right now. And it's about practice. You want to know how to practice God's ways? You want to know how to put into practice what Jesus is looking for? You go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read 14 to 20. And this is bringing the how-to to to what I'm raising up before us in this darkness and light and fellowship and no fellowship. It's a lot. I understand it. You may have to listen to this more than once. But, But get this. Understand what I'm putting on here. Ephesians 3, 14 to 20 says this. For this reason, I bend my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. See, not your capabilities. No, 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 no. This is, I would grant you, I would grant you, and he's bowing his knees before the Father because he's in prayer. And he's praying to the Father, and he said that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. What according to his glory? to be strengthened with power. This is not my power. This is not your power. This is not your pastor's power or some you know, person of high esteem in church history. This is according to his glory to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner self. So the, the Holy Spirit is going to come in our inner self And give us strength. Strength for what? He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now it's strength for faith. And the strength from faith comes from obedience to the word. And I'll explain to you why. When When the sin is cast out, when we begin to practice in obedience, put into practice the law of God in our hearts, not the, not the law of circumcision and the, the traditional ceremonial law. We're talking about the moral law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Shalt not murder. We're talking about the moral law. When that's being cast out because of the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit in the inner self, it says Christ may dwell, and that means to settle down in the Greek. Two, two words come together, settle and down, to relax, to feel comfortable, to be at home as though this is my home. So what's the so that Christ may feel at home in your hearts through faith? The exercise of faith that says, I can't do this, but God can. I can't do this, but you know what? God, the Father, can grant me according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in my inner self so that Christ may settle down, feel comfortable in our hearts through faith. It's all about faith. It's all about Him because it's all about Him. It's not about us. It's not about our scholarship. It's not about our knowledge. It's not about how we study. It's not about what we can contain in our mind. All of that is cast out Because it's through faith. And then he goes on and says, being rooted and grounded in love, now we're able to love. We'll fulfill the law through love. We love the the Father. We love God. 
completely with all our mind, heart, soul, strength, and our, our neighbor as ourself. It becomes love. So that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, width and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now those dimensions are talking about the size of God. I can't measure God. Can you measure God? But as we stand here as the, as the saints, able to comprehend with all the saints what? The incomprehensible. We, 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 how can you comprehend that Christ taking our sins upon him for eternity? But we, we comprehending it not with our, our mind, but with our faith. We comprehend the bigness of God with our faith. That's what's happening here. That our, our hearts, through faith, have Christ in it. Christ can comprehend everything. And he can impart to us in, a, in an unintellectual way the knowledge of it, that it's true. That's light. That's light. Not being able to, to define and explain EX, uh, X equals, E equals MC squared. Not, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a knowledge that can only be imparted by Almighty God. I can see that God is eternal. How in the world can a finite man see the eternality of God? Because Christ, dwelling in the heart, places it there. And now it makes sense. And now you have a divine, now you have an eternal perspective. You know what you can do with an eternal perspective? Number one, you can separate from the world, which we're called to do. Love not the world, nor the things in the world. Loving not the world is loving the philosophy of the world. You know, eat, sleep, eat, drink, be merry, before tomorrow we die. We're not cared about tomorrow because we're going to die. Forget eternity. You put in the ground, you're dead, that's over. That's the world. That's not the Christian. The Christian could care less about the world. He's caring about eternity. It's a whole different perspective. Oh, the lights went on. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the lights going on. I need to close this up. So after the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Without the power working within us, yeah, is, there's no... Uh, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power because the power is not there because it's not working within us. It has to be working within us. So I'm going to close, close with a little tale. You got two men. You got David who just read through the Psalms and you understand just how tightly knit he was to God. Imperfect as he was. You know, right away it's going to come up, you know, his, his fall into immorality and actually having a man murdered. And he was capable, as every sinner is, I am, you are, all sinners are. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so there's David with all his stuff like we all have. But drawing closer to God and closer to closer to God. And he takes a divided kingdom and God uses him through him. He, he unites the kingdom. He brings the tabernacle back into the, the center of worship. He worships God. He dances before God. He does everything right. He doesn't take matters in his own hands. He doesn't kill Saul when he has the opportunity. 
He 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 he's no wait hold it stop. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna, and that's what he's basically saying when he says he's not gonna kill the Lord's anointed. He's not lifting up Saul of all people. Do a study on Saul and he was just a reprobate. He was he was awful. You know it's not about Saul. It's about as the Lord's anointed. It's about not taking matters in his own hands. God wants Saul to die, who's king over Israel. He's got to do it. This is about all the pastors not thinking they're the head of the church when Jesus is. This is about putting the word of God first in practice. And that's what David did for the majority of his life. So even with his immorality, when he's an old man in his bed and he can't keep warm, and they take this really beautiful young girl and they put her in bed, he's, she's keeping the bed warm, but he's not sleeping with her. Read the scriptures. Those days are over. What God chastened him, and he became a better man. And that's what happens to every godly man in the Old Testament. With all the stuff they may have, they just become better and better and better. Like Jacob, you know, he's a supplanter in the beginning. He's just after everything he can get, and he's conniving his, his uh, uncle Laban. And at the end, he stands before Pharaoh, and what do you want? Yeah, I don't want anything. I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly what he said. Yeah, I don't need anything. I don't want anything. His eyes were on glory. His eyes were on God. His eyes were on a God that he had sinned against and he was broken in repentance. Now contrast that with the wisdom of Solomon. I know this is going to irritate some people out there. I don't know how many people will be listening to this, but this will irritate some people. But understand something about Solomon. He was wise. He wrote books. You know, Balaam, you know, gave three very interesting messages and he wouldn't blaspheme God and he wouldn't blaspheme the children of Israel or he would not curse the children of Israel. I'm sorry. You know, and, 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 but he was a terrible person. And the children of Israel wound up killing him and he has a bad report in, in Revelations and in other places. He's just, he's not a good, but he said the right things. Saying the right things is where we started this. You know, I prophesied in your name, and haven't I, you know, prophesied in your name? Look, look, I'm doing this for you. Yeah, I never knew you. Solomon was a man who said, I don't know if he's going to be in heaven or not. I'm not his judge. But if I were to go by the fruit, well, the fruit was he wasn't supposed to multiply horses, and he never stopped. He wasn't supposed to multiply wives, and he never stopped. Not only did he have 300 wives to make peace with the kings, and so he had 300 wives, but he had 700 concubines to satisfy his unending sex drive. So that, That's Solomon. And so at the end, he sets up idols throughout the land that are going to last for like 700 years, and just destroy and destroy and destroy the people of Israel until they go into captivity and God chastens them and brings them back. And, you know, they weren't a happy people to begin with, but Solomon didn't exactly make things better. And so he took the united kingdom of his, of his father David and he divided it. And there was war in Israel. You know, the, the, it just goes on and on. It's an endless array of fruit, non-fruit, ugly fruit, bad fruit that come out of his life. But he was wise. Why am I saying this? I'm talking about light and darkness. You can be a Solomon. And wherever his soul wound up, although I don't see him in the Hebrews 11 in, among the heroes of faith, that doesn't in itself mean anything. But 
Do you take the whole and put it together and people want to make Ecclesiastes, that was his repentance. That was words. There's no practice in Ecclesiastes. There's no repentance in Ecclesiastes. If you study it, I'm not talking about read it, and you study it, there's no real repentance in Ecclesiastes. You know, you can go to a series that I did on my blogs and there are a bunch of articles that I wrote there and I talk about David and I talk about Saul and, and David and Solomon and Jesus. The wisdom of Solomon didn't save him from a life of, of really bad practices that destroyed people's lives for centuries to come. That was the, that's the legacy of Solomon. Put that over and against David, you know, people are going to come right up against him with, you know, what he did, one thing that he did wrong, two things that he did seriously wrong, sure. Um, but his life had a whole lot more fruit. And Jesus, don't forget, is going to sit on the seat of David on that throne and he names David don't criticize somebody that that Jesus names don't follow someone that Jesus doesn't Solomon got warned and with those warnings there was no fulfillment of promises no great kingdom in a physical way in an earthly way sure in a spiritual way yeah not not at all dear heavenly father I thank you for your word it's a heavy message. It's a hard message. It's a message that does not ring well with easy grace. I'm not preaching easy grace today. I am speaking about lordship. I'm speaking to the fact, the idea that you are Lord. You are sovereign God. You are God. You are the God who, who loves and continues to bring people into your kingdom through the death and the burial and the resurrection and the promise of his coming kingdom, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that we preach today. All that we're saying about light and dark has no meaning if we don't see Jesus Christ as Lord and a Savior. Lord, may all the hearers, including myself today, see Jesus Christ as Lord, meaning what you say we are to do. It may go against everything that we want, but what we need is to practice your word by the power that dwells within us in the inner man. Lord, make Christ feel comfortable by casting sin out of our lives. Give us the desire and the want to cast sin out of our lives. We'll be the better for it. You get the glory and the pleasure. And that's really all that we should really ask for. Heaven is guaranteed. What we need now is to want your pleasure and your glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.